Hello and welcome to Fire Science Show Session 48. Uh, today I have a great guest for you. It's uh, actually, it's my idol. <laughs> I've invited Mike Spearpoint from the OFR. And Mike is one of the engineers and fire scientists that I probably admired most. I've actually once told him that if I grow up, I want to be just like him. And he told me that's a horrible lifetime. <laughs> so <laughs> I've got to reconsider that advice. However, after this episode, I might be leaning a little more to the original plan. Mike is known for his research in almost every end of fire science. And it seems that whatever you ask him about it, he has a half-written manuscript about that, which makes discussing with him a huge, uh, huge fun. There's uh, rarely someone so knowledgeable about uh, so many wide aspects of the field. And, and that's actually what we have discussed before the show. Uh, that's not on the tape. Uh, that it's sometimes necessary to go very broad with your knowledge. And in this view, you're able to connect dots between different methods, between different approaches, between different experiments that eventually lead you to uh, discoveries and connections that you have not ever made. Uh, so that's uh, one thing that uh, definitely stands out in, in this episode. And so far I probably got your attention, but I didn't tell you what the episode is about. So and uh, long story short, it's about car parks and uh, vehicle fires and design fires, but it touches so, so much more. Uh, it touches what is a design fire? How does one choose one? Why do we need one? It touches the history, brief history of car parks. It uh, touches the challenges with modern issues, automation and electric vehicles. Also why these challenges are not that very modern and unique after all. And that, that's, that's a funny finding. And we will venture even into using risk-based methods like J-value into determining fire safety. We go into modeling spread between vehicles. It's a really broad discussion, but I hope it's a very enjoyable one. For me, it was a source of great inspiration and I'm very thankful to Mike that he took the invite and, and went into this journey with me. So uh, let's not prolong this anymore. Let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. Hello, Mike. Great to have you on the show. Yep, great to, great to be invited. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for taking the invite. That's one of the episodes I was looking the most <laughs> for. So there's like one billion topics that we can discuss together, but I thought that we could talk about car parks because I found it very interesting to myself and your uh, name is on awfully lot of papers I come through. So I figured out maybe you know something about that. How long you've been involved in any any types of like car park fires, car park uh, activities, or vehicle fires? Yeah, I, I suppose I, that my first uh, foray into car fires was would have been back when I was working many many years ago back at Fire Research Station uh, BRE, and I happened to be working with a guy there called Martin Ship, who's sort of retired now, and he got involved in all sorts of interesting projects. And one of the projects that uh, was going on at the time was to look at the um, when they were building the Channel Tunnel. And and there was some debate at the time about the fact that they were going to have these railway cars that people could put their car on 
And obviously there was an issue, well, what happens if that car catches fire and how we might design, what sort of design should we do for the channel tunnel in, in terms of whether there's a car fire or not within one of these channel tunnel shuttle wagons. And so my understanding was there was a bit of discussion about what sort of design fire should we use for a car. There was already awareness of some work that had been done probably about 10 years before. So there's a, a paper by Keski Rakkonen where he had, and a colleague, I can't, Mangs and Keski Rakkonen, they'd burnt some cars kind of about the 1970s era and they'd got something like three megawatts as a sort of peak heat release rate. And at that point, there was a bit of discussion going on where says, well, do we think that's still the sort of size of a fire that we should be designing for this channel tunnel shuttle work. But anyway, it, was, it seemed to be decided that it would be a good idea to um, burn a couple of more, at the time, more modern cars. And so somehow I got involved in this project uh, because it needed quite a few people because you, we had to build this sort of ad hoc calorimeter at the big airship hangar that BRE used to have at Cardington. And Martin had gone off and bought a couple of uh, cars, so they were completely drivable cars, and they were put into this mock-up channel tunnel shuttle wagon, and and basically set fire to them and measure the heat release. And that probably is my uh, that sort of first foray into it. And, and there was a lot. Of, I mean, there's a paper you can go and read. It was quite interesting. We only burnt two cars because you know there's like a lot of these things. There's time and budget and that. But the first car we burnt was ignited. It was called an Austin Maestro. And the fire was ignited in the passenger compartment and to, to sort of see how that fire would develop. I remember the issue there was at some point during the fire, the part of the fuel pipe system must have broken and there was two thirds full of petrol or something. And that became a pool fire under the vehicle. So you ended up with a vehicle fire, but the associated pool fire. And that, that if you go and look at the paper, you see this rapid heat release and it's actually a dotted line because it essentially overwhelmed the calorimeters and that becomes that that mixture of car fire and pool fire and then then the second vehicle we burnt was a one of these um citron cars and and they have a pressurized suspension system so in that one the fire was started in the engine compartment um but one of the issues was for the fire brigades was was we couldn't be too near to this vehicle so we had to sit in the uh control room because the pressurized suspension and you could hear it well you could hear some banging sounds so these suspension and potentially there's these big metal rods that come out so so that's really where the the car fire stuff done it's you know kind of credit to getting martin ship got me involved with that and i suppose i was fortunate for, for what happened then was for some reason i mean obviously he's interested in, in heat release and car fires and for some reason there was a conference at nist on i think it was just a calorimetry conference and martin couldn't go so in the end i was fortunate to be the one who was going to go and do this presentation so so i went over to nist and give gave a presentation i don't think it was a very good presentation at the time i wasn't very happy with it but um kind of bit of a life story here. That was a sort of start of me having the opportunity to then, I ended up, so that was about 1997, uh, 96 or thereabouts. And, it, and for one reason or another, I ended up, that's where I ended up going to the University of Maryland to do my master's program, where I was really fortunate to work with Professor Quintieri and Fred Maurer. And that's where I first met Jose Torero and, and a few other people. So, so it's interesting and I'm sure everyone's got their sort of life story that said, well, mm -hmm. because that happened, then this happened, and who would have thought it? But then I ended up doing this, that, and the other. 
So, so that's kind of the start. <laughs> was it was a random opportunity to get involved with a particular project, and that led to other things just because of circumstances. That is so cool. And uh, you've said that you've pursued this project in the hope to find a design fire heat release rate for this channel tunnel project, but essentially design fire for a for a vehicle. And now, fast forward, like 30 years forward almost, um, if you ask me, was the design uh, fire for for passenger vehicle? I don't know. That's a difficult question. Do we have one? Does one exist? And in the end, uh, there is such a push from the industry, if we can call it like that. Everyone needs one. Like People need the design fire to do their job as fire safety engineers. So we don't want fire engineers to wonder what's the heat release rate of a vehicle. They they should have the number and know it. And over the years where I deal with vehicle fires, with car park fires, the design fire curve, the heat release rate curve, was always the number one subject we talk about. Like That's the number one thing people want to know. What's yeah. the design fire? Because that, that's the starting point. That, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you're right. I mean, I mean, there's the, uh, I would say the paper, somewhat of a classic paper by Vito Brabauskas and oh, I can't remember else from NIST, uh, which has got the title "Heat Release: The Most Important Parameters in Fire Engineering," or, or words to that effect. Because, because you're right. Having having the heat release then drives all sorts of other things that we need to know in terms of the plume dynamics, the potentially the yield, because in the end it becomes a function of the yields we might get if we're looking at toxicity and all radiation that we might get from that fire. So yeah, whether it's a car fire or anything, having that heat release, that energy release, is a key input to our design procedure, calculation, hand calculation, whatever. Um so in terms of but in terms of car fires, there's a few that have been proposed or a few is around. I mean, there's the the curve that I think some people are familiar with by uh, Schleich, if I haven't, if I've pronounced it correctly. So there is a, which isn't a T squared, it, as I remember, it sort of grows and then it plateaus and then there's a, a second growth point to that curve. It's uh, Jean-Baptiste Schleich and that's the one that's, I think, in DNO, uh, based from the TNO research that, that happened in 1999 and they yep. did fire tests in like a real car park. So they've, mocked up a calorimetry within a car park. They, they've burned some vehicles that were relevant for that time, as sedan vehicles. And uh, that, that's also the, the curve that we have been using in our engineering gu guidelines and our proposals as the starting point. And I like a lot about that curve, and I, I think we're going to talk about it, it later in the episode. But there's more. There's a Joyeuse curve from the... Yeah, yep, yep. yeah. maybe you know more than I do. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, there, there's the work that, that that Daniel's done in the past. Daniel Joyo's done, and and of course we could use a classic T squared, which you know some design codes and that will have. I think still in the New Zealand verification method, it will have a a, a T squared. I think it still might be a medium. I have to say it's a little while since I've looked at a medium growth T squared. So you you either might adopt some sort of generic, for want a better term, curve. So the T squared or you could have a T cubed or whatever, or you'd have something that's specific for a, a, a car, like the Schleich curve, which is, you know, which is, you would say, unique for that particular fuel package. We, we wouldn't use that for a, a chair or whatever. It's considered to be <laughs> reasonable, a representation of your car fire. Or, or you can go just uh, good old school steady state fire, four megawatts, one vehicle, eight megawatts, two vehicles. 
And I have no clue where the values came from. And my hunch tells me it was some CIN meeting or BS meeting where Howard Morgan said it is the value and, and it just remained like that till now. I, I don't know if that's true, but something tells me that might have been the the story of the of these design fires. And I, I, I love how you position design fire as the, the most fundamental thing. And uh, I agree with Vito that it is the, the most important thing in the fire engineering. And if you think about what would be the error in your engineering judgment if you mistake the heat release rate. <laughs> Let's say you take two megawatts where you should have taken eight. What's the impact of that on the outcome compared to like a choice of turbulence method or choice of the mesh size in your CFD? And yet people uh, spend so much time justifying these minuscule choices and they just go, and the fire was like seven megawatts yeah, because we fell right. because it was Wednesday. Yes, <laughs> we could end up on a different soapbox about the, um, I mean, I mean, again, this is not something that that I I invented. It's a term that I I adopted. I got it from Professor from Andy Buchanan, but I think he got it from a, one of his colleagues, David Elms. This idea of consistent level of crudeness. So if you know, there's no point going into a lot of detail in one parameter or one element if another element is going. You're going to have to make a sort of broad judgment. It doesn't make sense. So yes, you you want to get that consistent level of crudeness in any calculation. Otherwise, yeah, something will have a very little difference, but you might spend a long time worrying about it, uh, whereas something else you've just picked a number from thin air, but that might have a really big impact on the outcome. And so these are sorts of questions that uh, you know, myself and many others sort of wonder about or now and again try and do some simulations or calculations or try and demonstrate it. But there's lots of other people who who have got a lot more insight into these sorts of things than, than myself. Yeah, I think that this is very fundamental to the engine, the fire engineering as a whole. It's not only relevant to, to the car parks or, or car park fires. Now, if we venture more into the car park design fires, because that's something that is also interesting to me, I always found these approximations uh, that some people pursue with uh, with the, the car park fire uh, design scenarios like uh, averaging the, the results of experiments or trying to do this, as you mentioned, alpha T-squared approaches to define the fire growth. I always felt that, and you in a way confirmed me in the introduction, that the fires in, in vehicles, the fires in car parks, when you consider just a single vehicle, they feel very like event-based uh, things. The car is essentially multiple compartments there's the engine compartment, the passenger compartment, the fuel compartment, if you could subdivide it into parts like that. And w- when you have the fire in the engine compartment, when it's when it's the engine and the plastics around burning, it, it's only a certain size of the fire to, to which it can grow, and it eventually reaches that level and plateaus. And if the fire spreads to the passenger compartment, a lot depends if the windows are open or not. If they're open and there's ventilation, sure, you'll have a huge growth of fire because suddenly you consume the upholstered furniture inside. Same to the fuel tank. If you rupture it, you will suddenly transition into into a pool fire. But I feel that this is something that happens as an event in a chain of events. And because of that, I find it really hard to position it on a timeline. Even if you think about the ignition, 
fire can go for like long time, hour before it, it, it starts to be visible because it can be a tiny smoldering fire that eventually transitions into flaming. So you had this uh, incipient stage at which you have not even noticed that there's a fire. The same with the transition to the interior fire. A lot depends when the window breaks and this is random in a way. I wonder if, if you're observing Karpak fires from the first hand and the literature that has grown over the years, you, you maybe found similar conclusions on. Well, I think again, what you're alluding, you know, what you're discussing there about the the fact that some fires can take quite a long time. What we, you know, this what someone's called in the literature virtual time or incubation time is not is not restricted to car fires. I mean, you can go all the way back to the work that um, was done by NIST when they were sort of in the 1980s, and you've got the various chairs that they did and the wardrobes and that, you can find it in the literature. And in that, they, they, they recognise that there is this incubation time where not much is happening for quite a while. And at some point, the, you get this fire then um, accelerating. And so sometimes when you look at where we represent something as a T-square fire, we're, we're only looking at the bit where the fire has started to to accelerate and you miss out that that period where you've got that long incubation time. And, you know, other people have, you can see it in Quintira's Principles of Fire Behaviour and various other textbooks where, where the, you know, that's clearly written down. You've got these phases, but sometimes the only bit that might be of interest is the growth part, the T-square growth. And it partly depends, I suppose, what you're interested in. What, what If you're interested in when, for example, a heat detector might respond, the fact that there's a long incubation time where not much is happening kind of says, well, we're not going to get it to respond then. So in terms of calculating at some kind of time, it, it doesn't, you may say, it doesn't matter. Where I think we have missed out or where it can be important is, for example, we were looking instead at smoke detection, where that long incubation time still might generate enough smoke that we can get detection from a, a smoke detection system. I mean, I can think of experiments I've been involved with in the past where we'd have smoke detectors in the enclosure and have a piece of furniture, but even just igniting the wood crib, the little wood crib you put on the seat, was enough for the ionization detector to go off and the chair hadn't even started burning. So you're already detecting that fire kind of before it's even... Negative time of detection. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So again, I'm saying that concept of, or the, you know, the, the idea or the, the observation of this long incubation time is not unique to, to car fires. But certainly when you look at, there's a number of sets of data out there on car fires, you will again see, uh, in some cases, you get quite a long period of time before it goes into that sort of um, the growth period. And so I think sometimes people kind of look at these sorts of things as, oh, well, there's, it's only going to be five minutes before, let's say, your car fire reaches a megawatt. You go, well, it's actually, it might be 30 minutes. It's 20, 25 minutes of, of not much happening and it smolders and it burns a little bit in the engine compartment, and then you'll get that growth time. So there's actually potentially a wider opportunity to do something about it if there's a, a means of knowing that fire's happening in that incubation time. Okay, but then let's reverse that. And what if you have an experimental curve from a fire experiment? And uh, you remember, I, I think from Metro Project in Sweden, they were burning passenger trains 
And if I recall correctly, in one of the experiments, they had very long, let's say, this incubation period for the car for the train fire. It was not really like incipient stage hidden because it was like a fairly small fire, a few hundred kilowatts or maybe one megawatt or something, but fairly small fire for a train. And then it transitioned into full fire after a certain amount of time, quite long, maybe 30 minutes. And uh, if someone insisted to design now a, a train tunnel based on that curve and they just pops their, that in the CFD, it's one megawatt fire for 30 minutes and his CFD is finished before it even grown to a full size. I mean, that's ridiculous as well, because if the fire is in, in fact even based and in fact there are these points in time where a sudden change occurs in the fire behavior, in the fire dynamics, you don't know when that will happen. So so that approach would be as bad, I guess, or even worse. What's your opinion? Uh, I feel as though a lot of these problems end up becoming stochastic problems where, where uh-huh. we'd, we want to do, you'd want to be able to take multiple simulations or multiple scenarios and assign some kind of likelihood probability to it rather than doing, uh, and again, this is where sometimes where you've got a, a more sophisticated tool that takes quite a bit of resource to set up and run, but you end up only being able to run a, a small number of scenarios, has its limitations versus having a, a simpler tool which you can run multiple times and look at the, the, the parameters. And, you know, this is the sort of thing where one of the things I got involved with uh, when I, once I ended up at the University of Canterbury was getting involved with the development of, for example, the BRIS tool. So you've had Colleen Wade quite a few episodes ago. Such a good episode. Shout out to Colleen. Yeah. That was an so, ama- amazing trip. Zone modeling is not that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so the ability to, again, w- partly going back to that consistent level of crudeness, but be able to look at a large number of different parameters and and assigning probabilities to them allows you to then sort of look at this, say, rather than relying on one curve and one scenario, but allows you to that chance to look at where the sensitivity might lie and where the where the probabilistic side of it. And so that's that was certainly something that became that piece of work. And then, of course, you've from there, you had some work that uh, I mentioned Greg Baker, because he, he ended up doing some work on that, so using that tool, looking at the, the ignition. We did this whole stuff where we ran several, several enclosure fires with the same bits of furniture, but we ran it several times, burnt it several times. And of course, each time you burn it, even though you've got nominally the same starting conditions, it does something different each time. And, and then kind of bring it back to car fires was where... I had a, another student at the time, Zahir, um, and he used that same tool to start looking again at car park fires. And I, and I think your idea was to get onto some of this discussion where we were again looking at a, a probabilistic approach. And some of that led to using the, the BRIS tool to look at um, car fire ignition. And again, this idea, it's, it's going to be a probabilistic type problem rather than a, a deterministic, well, there's only one design fire and one design scenario that we might use for a, for a car park. The fact that you, uh, if you take, let's say, a very fancy, very advanced design fire being it a, a direct result of a fire experiment, so you literally put a real fire into your simulation and the fact that you use the most advanced tool you can find being CFD or something, uh, you, you're combining these two, and in in the end, 
the, the analysis is valued less, much less than if you just took some sort of probabilistic input in terms of possible range of fires. And they don't even have to be precise from experiments. You can, you can run an even tree analysis. You can figure out some credible scenarios and assign probabilities to them and, and density distributions to these probabilities. You can get a very nice looking probability input and use a simple model like a zone model uh, you've mentioned or one dimensional model for a tunnel and just run uh, literally thousands, if not millions of simulations and, and get a much, much better picture on what is happening in your building, what is an outcome of a potential fire in the building compared to this very fancy input with um, even fancier model that just gives you a, a single output point that is burdened with all the uncertainties of your modeling and your input. That That is an amazing thing because it's so hard to convey the message that simple is better and, and fires are inherently probabilistic and the stochastic inputs can, can get you only, only this far, but not further. They will never allow you understanding all of the physics that, that happen around you. I hope I got uh, I mean, your message correctly. <laughs> well, sort of, but I mean, I mean, and I don't want to, and I know sometimes I do end up dismissing the more complex tools, but there's some really clever things you can do with those complex tools and, and this idea of probability and selection that. So there was some stuff that myself and only, I have, I have to have listened to the episode, but last week or a week or two ago, you've had Danny, my colleague, and Ruben Van Coyle on. And, and some of the things that particularly Ruben at one point was looking at is is the ability to take a tool, a CFD tool, but be more um, selective about the parameters you choose and be able to do some analysis of that and be able to use, basically not have to run thousands and thousands of simulations, but be able to use some statistical techniques to get the results you've got from that sophisticated tool and use that to make sort of, you might say, predictions in terms of um, a sort of a probabilistic approach. I'm not really explaining that very well, even though a we we did have a paper in um, um in a conference, but that you know, most of that was uh, Ruben and Danny did the clever stuff. So so there are there are ways that we can use the sophisticated tools without having to do the full Monte Carlo sort of probabilistic approach from from sort of turning that handle. But it, but it does require some quite sophisticated or some things that are quite clever in terms of interpreting or understanding the results you get from the tool. And then one thing that interests me a lot, and now we're, we're moving to the stuff you did with here. When you model a car park, me as an engineer, when I model a car park, I often close myself to the concept that if it's sprinkled, I just model one vehicle fire. If it's unsprinkled, I have to, in a way, account for the fact that neighboring vehicles may be on fire as well. And I, I usually do that by, by incorporating the concepts from the Dutch standards, which assigns a certain heat release rate curves to the neighboring vehicles. But it all falls under the assumption that uh, the, the firefighters intervene around 20th minute and they can stop the fire. And that's not always the case. And I, I think now, if you take a look at the fires that occurred in the last five years, starting with Liverpool, Huge, huge fire in, in a car park that destroyed the building, I think. There was a very similar fire in, in Ireland, in Cork. There was mm -hmm. a huge fire in Stavanger Airport in Norway. And even in Warsaw, we had a very similar huge fire 
which involved multiple vehicles and almost destroyed a residential building that was built on top of that car park. And uh, so, so these these types of massive, massive fires happen. And if you then again look at the statistics, you very rarely find reports of car park fires that involve, I don't know, seven vehicles, nine vehicles, 11 vehicles. It's either one, two, maybe three cars that have been burned or the whole car park fire burned down. So there's this, I don't know, a point where it, it's like a domino effect that the fire spreads through vehicles very rapidly. Uh, and that makes sense to me. Maybe the conditions in a car park fire are are, are such that, that multiple vehicles can ignite very quickly from that. But this is something you have investigated with, with here. And I wanted to hear about that work because you were modeling the spread between vehicles. Maybe you can... Yeah. So again, a lot of these things take a while before they sort of... There's sort of things going on before the, the work itself. I'm just thinking back. So somewhere along the line... Firstly, when I, so I, I end up after doing my master's at University of Maryland, I, I end up do, taking this position at the University of Canterbury. And I think there was sort of discussions going on in New Zealand and probably Aust- say Australasia on car park fires. I mean, it's a topic that's been going for many years, going all the way back to the work in Fire Note 10 and Langdon Thomas and Butcher, which has had an influence on what's going, still is in our guidance documents about fire resistance. But anyway, it was during that time at Canterbury. And at some point I had a, must have been, I think it was about 2003, 2004. There was, now and again, you get emails, someone asking about, oh, a car park, or what do I think might be something for a design? And I have to, you know, kind of in preparation for this, this discussion, I went through some of my old emails and I found one from around about 2003 or 2004 from a guy called, uh, Simon Davis, who was at the New Zealand uh, Fire Service, as it was then known, um, saying saying about all this um, concern about people not putting sprinkler systems in car parks, because I think the guidance documents or the acceptable solution in New Zealand may have had you know, um, putting in sprinklers. And he was sort of saying, oh, I, I, you know, th- this was something that was concerning him from a, a fire and rescue service sort of point of view. And at some right point, I had a student called Yu Guang Li, who, for some reason, I don't remember the, the background or why, but in the end, he did his master's thesis on this question of car park fires. And at that point, uh, it was interesting. I said to him, well, it'd be interesting to do a cost-benefit on whether it's worth putting sprinklers in or not. And he ended up doing his uh, a little thesis, and there's a couple of papers in the literature. And he looked at it from a, a property protection point of view, is, is it worth putting sprinklers in, doing a, a traditional cost-benefit analysis. But part of what he did there was he, he looked at the the New Zealand statistics on how many fires had spread between one car, two cars, to three cars. And in the end, he got some statistics. Like you're saying, it was kind of like there's a a certain number of one-car fires, and then it becomes a certain diminishing number of two cars and three cars. And, of course, the question is in your mind is, well, is it only went to one car, two car, three cars? Is it because the fire and rescue servers have turned up and they've managed to tackle the fire sufficiently early on that the fire hasn't spread to a neighbouring car. And so they've managed to suppress the fire sufficiently. Or is it that there's no other car next next to it, right? So just there isn't the opportunity. And so these are sort of questions you kind of think, oh, well, I don't. And of course, the, the statistics are not nuanced enough to be able to, unless you know the actual event and you can visit the car park, the statistics generally will say the number of cars that were burned 
but it doesn't say the number of cars that potentially could have been burnt had something not happened. And so it makes you wonder. You think, well, I wonder why it didn't get any further than that. Was it by good, good judgment, good work by the Fire and Rescue Service, or good luck? There was nothing next to it. And and I remember at one point I was I'd, I'd gone out one evening for some reason somewhere, and when we parked the car in the car park, the car park was pretty full of cars. And you look around, you think, well, if this our car caught fire, it could spread to spread to all these other cars. But by the time we got back from whatever event it was, a lot of the car park had been emptied. And then you looked around and there was a cluster of two cars over there and a car standing by itself and another couple of cars over there. And you think, well, now, if we'd had this car park fire, it is simply that the car could have caught fire. But really, realistically, it wasn't going to go anywhere else because mm. the, the next car was five bays away. And you think it's unlikely to spread to that. And so that would have been that sort of 2004, 2005. And then some, so in my mind, I thought, well, it'd be interesting to do a probabilistic analysis, kind of what's the probability that if you've got N cars in a car park with Z number of car parking spaces, that Y cars are parked next to each other. It's kind of a classic thing that I remember at high school used to do these sort of uh, probabilistic problems, you know, when you were learning about Bayes theorem and that and all those sorts of things and you've got a bag of some black balls and white balls and red balls and if you pull out a red ball then you know that the probability that the next ball is going to be something else I thought maybe there's some clever mathematical way of answering my question of what's the probability of so many cars being next to each other when a car park is only partially full but I hadn't really pursued that any further it was just like maybe someday someone could look into that and then Somewhere on the line, I must have got an email from Zahir, who eventually became a, a PhD student. And he, he was being sponsored by his local universities, from, and he's back in Malaysia now. And they, he was being sponsored to do a PhD. And he was interested in risk. And somewhere on the line, I must have said, oh, car park fires, it, there might be an opportunity to do something with car park fires. I've got this kind of idea that maybe we could do, there's a probabilistic sort of problem here about this so many cars and so many rows and that sort of thing. And obviously that somewhere along the line, Zahir must have thought, yeah, well, that sounds like an interesting problem. It would sort of meet his sort of criteria to look at risk and that. And so in the end, Zahir came to the university and these, this is a sort of question that we delved into, this question of what's the likelihood that a fire could spread to a, a two cars, three cars, four cars, if there's only a limited number of cars in the car park. I remember, I think he went over to the maths department. I said, well, go and speak to the maths department. There might be some clever person in maths who says, oh, well, that's so-and-so's theorem, and we'll be able to do it very analytically. But I, he didn't manage to find anyone. And in the end, he, he ended up writing a little model that, that basically did it by Monte Carlo, by basically populating a, a, a sort of an idealized car parking space, and then said, okay, if we put N cars in our car park, and, and, and basically did it. I might say the hard way, but the way of just say turning the handle sounds a bit, but doing it simulation by simulation to give us this this maybe some insight into this question: what's the likelihood a car fire could spread from one to another? Wow, that's a long uh, story, but that, that, that's a long story, but it's a good story. And and Zahir is now in, back in Malaysia. I have some contact with him, and I often said that that he's. Uh, PhD and his work was one of the most inspiring uh, to me in my professional career in terms of work that is like directly useful to what I'm doing. And 
one of the concepts that you have together touched because uh, you didn't explain how does uh, a fire, w- when you would consider the fire spreads from one vehicle to another. And that was with something called, if I'm not wrong, please correct me, flux time product, which yeah. was bas- basically the amount of heat excessive over some uh, threshold value. So you would have a, a certain value that does nothing and then the value of heat that over exceeds that, that accumulates over a time on a certain uh, part of the vehicle, that if a critical value for that is met, this causes an ignition of that point. And um, yeah. if I'm not wrong, you've also associated the different flux time product values to like bumpers, wheels, uh, upholstery yeah. inside. Yeah. That is very inspiring to me because now today, I am looking into, you know, CFD modeling or let's say advanced modeling of, of car park fires in wind conditions. And what we are looking into is how wind changes these probabilities that fires spread from one vehicle to another. Because one thing that the wind does is that it will dilute the temperatures by you know, basically creating a flow inside of the of the car park. But then again, you will also put flames in the contact with another vehicle. Exactly, so the yeah. radiation there may be completely different. So it's an interesting problem. And we're moving back to the things developed by you and Zahir back then as, as a potential solution, as a trigger for the ignition of the next vehicle. And yeah. I, I think this is also a brilliant uh, screening tool, if, if I may. If you use an uh, approach like that, if you would like calculate just calculate the value of this uh, accumulated flux time product around your source of fire in CFD. You can do, in Fluent, you can do it with basic user-defined functions. You can just map, is this criteria met anywhere nearby or not? Yeah. Because as you said, did the fire not spread because there was no vehicle or because the conditions have not loaded for that? And, uh, and that's a hell of a different story. If if uh, if a car park has properties that would not allow the fire to spread, then no matter how packed it is, it's it's just going to be safe, right? And and this is something that we want to pursue as as well in future as an indicator whether you could go into this, let's say, cascading mode, cascading fire scenario. Is it even possible with this architecture? And and, and so far, we already see that the, for example, height of the car park would be a very, very critical variable in this consideration because how it changes the temperatures around the fire, the smoke layer, and how it promotes like re-radiation to the sources around. So so that that looks like like something we will work with. And did, did you implement this uh, also in BeRisk? Uh, what, what was the end of yeah. the story? Well, well, I mean, I can't take any credit for the concept of the flux time product model. I mean, you can go back to the, there's some papers, Gordon Silcock, but I think there was someone before that, which the name escapes me. And even I think the idea of this cumulative radiation approach probably comes from someone like Harmathy. So you can go back okay. to some of that Old work. Back. So the, yeah, the, the flux time product as a, as a concept was nothing I can take credit for. But where I think it matches in with what we've been talking about is as part of our, when we were developing the BRIS tool, so moving from the brands fire tool to the BRIS tool, we wanted to create this idea of a item to item fire spread. And this is where Greg Baker, um, who I mentioned already in his PhD, was looking at how might we be able to do a, a sort of statistical 
or a, or a probabilistic um, assessment of if you've got furniture in your room, let's say, and you want to know if the fire starts one chair, that it ignites the neighbouring chair and so on. And then we want to look at it stochastically. So the furniture could have different numbers of furniture in your room and different positions in the room. We wanted to be able to then create a series of design fire curves for each of those or heat release curves, and then take that back to some kind of design fire curve that says 99% of the time or 95% of the time, we can show that any arrangement of furniture and any numbers of reasonable number of furniture, as if you choose a, again, a T-squared curve, that will give you some sort of level of confidence that your design will work because you know that 95% or 99% of the time, the heat release curve you get from all your different possible arrangements of furniture won't be any worse than your T-squared, which is why we're going back to our T-squared. I think a lot of the benefit of a T-squared is it's never meant to represent a real fire. What it does is it gives you a bounding that says it is some kind of upper boundary on the fact that this heat release curve represents a percentile of likelihood it's happening, that a fire of this magnitude will occur. It won't be that that happens in reality. It will be something likely to be less onerous than that. But you you demonstrate your design works for a sufficiently onerous fire. Um and I don't know which path I'm going to take here. So, for example, some recent uh-huh. work that I was involved with, Charlie Hopkin and his PhD was yep. was looking at that at that question for residential fires. And he basically is a paper that Charlie wrote that looked at this question and said, if you take the, the T-squared fire that might be in one of the design guide, uh, BS99 or 99 or one of those, you can show that it has a certain uh, percentile exceedance probability or, or Going back to the B-risk stuff. So what we were trying to do is doing this this idea of a design fire generator that Greg Baker was doing. But we wanted to be able to make it relatively flexible in its calculation. So part of it was where we went and looked at the point source model. And rather than doing a, a, a whole sort of sophisticated flame boundary, we sort of looked at the point source model and the, and the applicability of that. And that's where you can see, see the work of a guy called Rob Fleury, who did some good work on the point on on modelling flames, measuring flames, and that actually I think ended up in the in the FDS VMV guides, which is a separate story. And so we got the point source model, but we also wanted a way to look at the ignition tool, and and yep. of course we wanted, and so I think it must have been probably Greg kind of said, oh, we've got this thing called the flux time product model. This might be a good one, good tool to implement into B-Risk because it allows us to do this relatively, I call the word simple, but, but useful application, a point source model for the fire, an FTP for the fact that a piece of furniture or next piece of furniture would, would ignite. It would give us a useful tool to do that. So that got implemented into the B-Risk tool. And Greg did his work for his PhD. And then at the same time, Zahir was around. And we probably looked at this tool and said, well, we could, we could, let's give it a go with the car park problem. And so we, Zahir would then, we took the BRIS tool and, and the idea of the point source. But what we had to do was get properties for the materials that you, that could ignite on your vehicle. In other words, a bumper and the tires and that. And I think we got some of the, the properties from some work, and this kind of all closes all these loops, that Martin Schiff had done 
on car park fires at BRE in around about 2010. So it was after, obviously, I'd moved to Canterbury then. But there was, Mm. again, another interesting in car park fires in that point there. And I'd been in contact with Martin. I kept in contact with Martin, so I knew that project was going or he kept in contact with me. But they had done some cone calorimeter or some, I think, cone calorimeter of various parts of the car. And then we took their data, um, derived the FTP parameters, so we, Zahir did that work, and then used the BRIS tool to try and reconstruct the car park experimental work that Martin had, had done, where we, he had put cars and he'd burnt one car and had a space between one car and another, or had another car next to each other, yeah. and got some reasonable results. So, you know, using the BRIS tool, using the concept of the FTP, using some data that's in the literature and and be able to demonstrate that there was some merit in that tool. But of course, it goes back to the fact that other people had already thought about the FTP through, I say, that work of Gordon Silcott and that, and through the fact that Greg Baker had seen that that was a useful tool and through the fact that Colin Wade had implemented it into the tool, through the fact that Rob Fleury had done the work on the point source model. And so it's really important. I think it's so important to kind of see how these things all link together yeah, uh, I, I, I'm not sure what my role in this, and otherwise, and then, then basically <laughs> sitting there and pointing at angel. someone who says, "Oh, you, you <laughs> might as well go and talk to so and so because uh, they've done some really clever stuff." But for what I like is the way that these things join together, and you know, one idea builds on another. The classic: we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, and that. But yeah. but it's seeing those connections and and building those networks so that one one person's piece of work suddenly springboards onto something else. Which, it's amazing. Which just, yeah. you know, just seems interesting that those things happen. Talking about fab materials in cars, there was another bit of work I did while I was at the University of Maryland, again, looking through my stuff. And I remember I did this course on fabrics and flammability. Uh-huh. And so we did a little project. So there was me, me uh, Thomas Steinhouse, and Steve Olenek. Um, so, so Steve Olenek still at, uh, I think, Combustion Science and Engineering, and Thomas and so we did it. We, we decided to do this little project. So at the time, Thomas was working on what was called the FIST, which was uh, a project that Jose was looking at, flame spread for spacecraft. And we sort of said, oh, it would be interesting to take fabrics from old motor vehicles and see how much their ignition properties change. Because, again, there was this debate that said, well, once you look at a vehicle, the vehicle might be 20, 30 years old. So do the properties of the fabrics change? I remember we went off to a breaker's yard and we cut bits of material out of different cars. So we were allowed to go in there. And and then we basically – so I was looking after the cone calorimeter and Thomas, maybe Steve and Thomas, were looking after this project with – involved with Jose and we end up looking at all these different car fabrics and again we end up publishing a little paper on it and and Jose was involved so again you can see how we kind of connected the fact that we had had a bit of an understanding of fabrics and and a bit of sort of an opportunity came along because of these different things that happened to going on and that builds onto the next thing that you don't always know what it's going to lead to and that you know eventually led to this this idea of using the FTP and properties um, that Zahir did, that I, I know it's nice to see that someone else like yourself is seeing some value in that and then taking the next value saying it's fundamental, man. It's amazing. And the interplay of these all little things that you've mentioned, how they come up and uh, randomly pop in a completely different project to change the shape of that project. That That is fire science at its fin- finest, Mike. And it's amazing. 
And with this um, cost-benefit analysis for car parks, I also saw recently you had a paper that, based on objective assessment, the sprinklers do not really make that much sense. Maybe you can tell me a little more about this recent work. Uh, a piece of work that I ended up supervising, co-supervising at one of the, one of the students, um, Malika. And so um, it was myself and, and Grunda ended up co-supervising that. And we, we applied this concept, which, which uh, my understanding you're going to have another episode, possibly, this, this kind of life quality index and this variation on it called the, the, the J value, which is a, an idea various people have been looking at as a way of doing cost-benefit analysis. So that previous cost-benefit analysis that Yuguang did used what we might call a traditional value of life approach. It was something I actually ended up, I did many, many years before that on smoke detectors, this how much is a life worth. But it has some, a whole number of problems when you, when you assign a monetary value to life in the way that's been done. So various people have have looked at way of doing cost benefit analysis that doesn't assign a monetary value to life but assigns a value in terms of the quality that you can give to to extending someone's life. Mm-hmm. And because Yu Guang had in this this previous cost benefit analysis on is it worth putting sprinklers in in terms of property protection it seemed to be that it would be useful to maybe look at this concept, this J-value concept, and reapply it to car parks and also look at it from a life safety point of view. So in the end, I, I remember talking to Grunder, and Grunder had done some, some other separate work on a similar in this similar direction. So I said there's various parties work on this. And, and we said, oh, it would be useful to get a student to maybe revisit kind of Yuguang's concept or, uh, and decide and have a look at this. Because there, mm-hmm. there is a lot of interest around the world from various parties stakeholders are saying we should maybe put sprinklers into car parks i I know it's good reason but is it from a life safety point of view is it from a property safety point of view is it from a fire and rescue service point of view so we thought it'd be worth taking this j value concept and applying it again to car parks to look at whether we think it it might be worth putting sprinklers in or not and I, I suppose in the end, the finding is from a life safety point of view, it, it isn't worth it. And, I, and, I, and that is essentially because in terms of the number of fires which casualties have occurred, it's a small number. Now, it would be fair to someone to say, yes, but you've based that on historic data. And that historic data is for internal combustion engines. Will that change with electric vehicles? autonomous vehicles and so on? Possibly. The data, obviously, we don't have a lot of experience of these vehicles and fires in car parks. So getting probabilistic data that we can put into a calculation such as this is difficult to do. So that is something that clearly is not a closed answer. It will depend on other changes that we might see in the technology of car parks, the technology of cars, the use of cars, the likelihood of fire, the potential for casualties may change that. Of course, there is a debate about whether it's even a good idea to put water onto lithium battery fires. There is a debate about the fact that if you try and put water onto a car to try and mitigate a fire with a sprinkler, well, cars are designed 
not to let water in them. Going back to our question of historically cars were put in in garages because they were not very good at protecting themselves from the elements. Modern cars we design not to let water in them. So therefore, the main objective, and I think Martin Ship showed it in his car park work uh, from 10 years ago, is that a sprinkler system will maybe limit the spread to neighbouring cars, but it will have a less chance of suppressing or extinguishing the fire in the car because the, the fire is in the car, but the water can't get in. So, so there are lots of, again, connections and questions and, and obviously room to, to debate these things. And that, you know, it's a good thing in a way from a policy sort of point of view. That that makes it a little bit challenging. Should we put sprinklers in car parks? Is it worth it? Should we put it in all car parks? Personally, I don't think so. Should we put it in car parks that may be below residential buildings? Well, I can see some merit in that. Should we put it in a car park which is next to some station out in the middle of the countryside, which is an open car park where people park their car to get on the train? Probably not. There's nothing else nearby, particularly. People can walk away from the car park. Putting sprinklers in there, probably not, I don't think is worth it. So again, a lot of these things is, I'm not sure that just simply saying put sprinklers in all car parks is a good idea, but I'm not saying don't put them in any car parks. This is where fire engineering and you know, an analysis and thinking says, where is where are those, where is it meaningful to do it and useful to do it? And where is it kind of, to be honest, a waste of time or, or a waste of effort? And that, that's where cost-benefit gives you a, a tool to think about these things and, and question it from, from an economic point of view. And, and, and I don't, again, I don't want to get too far down on the, the economic question, but I, but I will say this. I, I feel as though that some people think when, when, once you start talking about the economics of fire safety, you're kind of put into this sort of box of, oh, well, maybe you don't care about fire safety or you just want to reduce everything and not pay for anything. And, and and I don't think that's as simple as that. I think in the end, we only have a certain resource in society for safety. And it doesn't matter if we took all the money in the world and put it into fire safety. Firstly, we still wouldn't be able to solve all the fire safety problems. And secondly, we'd be taking that resource away from other safety concerns that society needs to address. What we have is a limited pie. Whether you're a, someone who wants lots of taxes and, uh, and a big pie for the public to spend on safety, or whether you're someone who, who doesn't want a lot of taxes and wants a smaller pie, you still have to decide how to divvy up that pie. And that's where the economic question is still a useful question to have. What proportion of that pie, however big that pie is, should we put on fire safety? Should we put on into hospital, into childcare, into all sorts of things that we as society yeah. put value on, and, you know, and rightly put value on, but we can't, like it or not, we can't solve, if we can't solve them all. Yeah, Ruben said something very, very similar. And you're so nice calling the people who help you on your pathway to here or whose achievements were very significant. And I would like to drop a name as well in terms of this sprinkler interaction with fire in, in terms of vehicles. There was amazing, amazing research project run um, by uh, University Ghent and, and the spin-off company Fire Safety Engineering Solutions. I think they're part of Jensen Hughes yep, by yep, now. I've... Run by Xavier Deckers, who, who were investigating that a lot. And it's a fantastic project. I really, really need to get him on the show to talk about that because I found that research 
exceptional. And uh, now, so you've mentioned autonomic and electric uh, vehicles, uh, and we've spent a good while discussing the design of fires. How do you think this changes, the field changes? How, how will that in, in impact our design uh, fire or design of the car parks in general when we start taking electric vehicles, for example, into? Yeah, so this topic, the topic of alternative vehicles, I, I, I think it had already, again, these sorts of things have been, people have been thinking about and I, for quite a few years now. And I, and I think when Martin Ship was doing that work it, 10 years ago, the, the concept of electric vehicles, the concept, the, the question about how alternative vehicles, whether it's hydrogen or electric or, or hybrid, might be um, changing the way that car parks are used, was being raised. So again, I'll, I'll take a few steps back before we go forward. So one of the projects I kind of recently got involved with a few years ago was uh, a, a piece of work I did for the British Parking um, Association on kind of the history of car parks fire safety or fire guidance um, because at the time the government in England was was asking for consultation about maybe potential changes to uh, the statutory guidance ADB and for one reason or another they ended up the BPA got in contact with me I think maybe through um, Luke Bisbee but I can't remember maybe I'm not right but anyway so so we end up doing this self and Danny and I think Matt Arnott, yeah, Matt Arnott from OFR as well was involved with this looking at the sort of the history of fire design in I suppose you say in the UK and and a bit international so the first thing I did was actually did a little bit of a, a, a sort of well, what is the history of car parks and you can go back and find that car parks, obviously, it's somewhat tied to the history of cars, the private passenger cars, <laughs> um, uh, not surprisingly. And you actually yeah. find that the, the first car parks were around about the sort of early 1900s. And of course, some of those first car parks were simply horse stables that didn't need horses anymore because people put cars in them. And also, it was interesting at the time with those first cars, they weren't very weather protected. So you couldn't really park them out on the road because those old cars didn't have a, a roof on them. So people wanted to put them into a weather protection. So so they would stick it in, a, wouldn't have been a car park at the time. It was probably an old you know, horse stable. But the first car parks that really became car parks, and, it, and one of those buildings is one in Glasgow, and the building still exists. I mean, I've got a photograph of it. You know, 100 and something years later, were actually for electric vehicles, right? So when you look okay. at the history of car parks, the first couple of uh, garages that were ever parking buildings were for electric vehicles. The other thing that's quite interesting is that you couldn't park your own car. So a lot of the original car parks either had an attendant who would park the car for you or they were looking at automated car parks. So some of the early car parks had quite sophisticated at the time machinery to move the car around. And the idea of parking your insane. own car in the car park wasn't kind of the thing that people did. And, and of course, at that point, a lot of people didn't have cars. You know, in the early 1900s, cars were relatively rare. And so when you look at the history of car parks in that early stage, it was basically a storage occupancy because you didn't worry about life safety because it was either parked by a parking attendant or it was automatic. So when you look at from an insurance point of view, it was basically, as far as I can tell, treated like another type of storage occupancy. It was a place to store cars. But, but the world changed. I mean, particularly post-World War II, the, the world changed in terms of car ownership. Car ownership suddenly became a much more mass market. 
And this is where I get interested in social history and that. The other thing, particularly in the UK, post, post-war, there were lots of changes in society. So there were changes in society in terms of car ownership. There was a whole uh, redevelopment of cities around the UK post-World War II, slum clearances, uh, the idea of multi-story residential buildings, like we could go a separate topic then that leads you to the to Grenfell and other things, which which I don't want to get into. But it but also the use of the idea of motorways, out of town shopping, and the use of car parks. And also changes in then in the way that car parks were used. And kind of around about that time or sort of World War II, post-World War II, the idea changed that people wanted to park their own car in the car park. So you had a change in car parks, you needed ramps, you end up with concrete buildings, concrete car parks, and the philosophy of car parks was people wanted their freedom to park, park their own car, not have to wait for an attendant. And so that, that kind of changed. And then you look in around about the 1960s, it would have been, and here in the UK, there was a recognition that car ownership was changing significantly. And there was a question was, where are we going to park all these cars? Right? Because lots of more people could afford a car in the UK. Lots more roads were being built. Lots more opportunities to take your car somewhere. And therefore, car parks became a social kind of focus, but obviously, fire came into it. And that's where you see the classic work in Fire Note 10 and the idea of building your car parks with steel frame, not just of concrete, and what sort of fire resistance, and do we think fires will spread from one to another? And so, and that's where we end up with also the internal combustion engine. So going back to the electric vehicles, originally a lot of the vehicles were electric vehicles, but you didn't get the range, you didn't have the power. Then you ended up where society said we could get cheap petrol, diesel and that. So you had all that development of the of the side of the of industry, which meant the internal combustion engine became the fuel of choice because it gave you the range, it gave you the cost effectiveness. And so where we are coming back to, we're almost coming back to electric vehicles from where we started, albeit electric vehicles, the chemistry of those electric, the batteries are going to be quite different. Um, Not something I know of, but I, I understand that you've just had a DK doing a, a podcast on um, battery technology. I know Guillermo one, yeah. Rains doing stuff, and uh, there's lots of people who are doing interesting. Uh, I'm sure there's other people I've named, but I'm aware of, but I can't remember. So the, the electric vehicles have changed, but also you know, the battery technology has changed, and not just the battery technology, but the vehicles themselves have changed. And so now we're in a position where we're sort of interested in alternative vehicles, alternative to the internal combustion engine and that's raising different questions about the fire safety so how might a fire develop in a vehicle with a battery in it how does that fire start in the battery or does it start just in the 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 vehicle the passenger compartment and does that fire develop differently will it be different whether an electric vehicle is on charge or not there's a lot of we do a lot of debate about the electric vehicle catching on fire, but if you're going to have charging points for your electric vehicles, you're going to have the infrastructure in the car park that in itself may present a hazard that may be different to the fact that the, you've got the electric vehicle. Um, how do the fire and rescue service 
deal with electric vehicles, given that the fires in those vehicles may reignite which we wouldn't expect in internal combustion engines. So it, it has now become a topic of, of interest around the world, this question of electric vehicles, alternative fuel vehicles, car parks, the safety of fire and rescue services, the potential for fire spread, the where does the fire start, what's the probability. I know there's some, I've recently, very recently, there's been a report from Denmark which I've only read the summary because my Danish is not good enough to read the report, who have said that the, the risk posed by electric vehicles is, I would say, no worse or is, is, not, as, is not as high, as, not as great as um, internal combustion engine uh, vehicles. So, so that, you know, th- there is a, a lot of debate. One of the things I'm quite interested in at the moment is also this concept of autonomous vehicles. So I did this BPA report. And then I ended up going on a, a pre-pandemic, a conference on parking. So I went to this conference on, on parking. It, it would say nothing to do with fire. I was the only person, I was one of the few people who was interested in fire. And at a conference, all the discussion was about was electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles as a kind of the future. And, and then and I thought, well, there's actually some interesting opportunities and challenges if we think about autonomous vehicles that are um, electrically powered. And so myself and one of my colleagues, Stephen Dixon, has just actually submitted a little paper on what might those opportunities and challenges be if you've got autonomous vehicles that are electric vehicles. I mean, if they're autonomous vehicles, it basically means the person can step out of their car and the car will park itself. Almost going back to the original car parks, it says you don't need to drive your car to your parking space. If it, it can go to its own place and you don't have such a life risk because people aren't in their car. It it might mean you can firstly know where the electric vehicles are. You might think about putting different types of suppression systems in because you're not so uh, concerned about the fact there might be people in or within the region of their car. Because they're electric vehicles, you don't have the same issue with car parks in terms of providing ventilation for environmental health. You know, a lot of times in car parks, we look about ventilation. It's all to do with the toxic fumes from the exhaust and the potential for a flammable liquid to uh, cause an explosion. Electric vehicles change that. We don't, as far as I know, have any exhaust issues with an electric vehicle. So therefore, ventilation. Thermal runaway products can be explosive. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one thing the DK said, and it's also yes. interesting to view it as an explosion hazard. But I, I love, I, I immediately have that thought that if they're autonomous and electric and there's a fire, like the vehicles near the, the one that burns can just drive away. Could, that would be quite funny, right? Could possibly drive away. That might ha- have an impact on fire and rescue service operations if there's all these cars <clears throat> autonomously moving around. Um, one of the things that I've caught quite interesting to me. Sorry, Mike, but one thing that blows my mind. If the car was autonomous and can could pick you up near your house or at the designated space in your house, you suddenly would not have a need of a car park in your yep. residential building. You can take the whole risk. That's the fire in, in Gurcheska in, in Warsaw. A fire that occurred in a semi-open car park underneath a residential building that had 10 floors of flats above it. And suddenly, because of this fire, all the people are out of the building and cannot come back for two years. And that's a horrible disaster to the local community because suddenly 
I don't know, 70 families are without a house. And that's because they had a car park underneath their building that burned down. Why they had the car park? For the convenience of being able to reach their vehicle when it's needed. Yeah. And if you could just call your vehicle, it can be like five minutes away from you and it could just drive away to pick you up. Yep. So yep. that literally changes the needs that drive you to take a higher risk by having a car park in your building, right? That, that's fascinating. Yeah. If, and that's why, you know, again, it's it's interesting and useful to understand from a fire point of view that the, the technological and social changes, just like we've seen those changes from electric vehicles to internal combustion engines in the sort of 1920s or whatever. We've seen car parks and society change post-World War II. We're seeing these changes again, potentially, on electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles, and that will have some uh, impacts on fire safety. Some of those could be positive, beneficial. Some of them might be more challenging. So, for example, when you think about autonomous vehicles, if you don't need to be in your car, you don't need to have the ability to open the doors to get in and out. So you can pack more cars into a car park, right? So when we look, and, and there's another little project I did, which I think Zahir and, and Tony Arbu and uh, uh, one of the other students involved, this question of what's the fire load for car parks? We've got a basis of a, cer- a certain space per car because we need space for the the vehicle to be accessed by the passengers. But once you think about autonomous vehicles, you don't need to have that space. You don't actually need to have the traffic lanes. You can park the cars much more densely in a car park, and that will have potential impacts on the potentially the fire resistance requirements because your fire load it will have maybe have impacts on the fire and rescue service that the car on fire might be one in the middle of a pack of cars that you can't easily access so they might be able to get their hose lines to it in a more inefficient way so so there might be those challenges but those challenges might be mitigated by the very reason is you don't need your car park underneath your residential building anymore you have it somewhere else and your car comes to you rather than you go to your car so for me it seems to be it's kind of useful to think about these things because the buildings we're building now or renovating now will will be changing or or things things will change in the future because of other reasons these technological reasons or societal reasons i mean you're right so the liverpool echo arena car park fire has got knocked down and they're rebuilding it they're rebuilding a new car park there and in rebuilding it obviously these questions uh, come up how many electric vehicle charging points should we have but there i see that maybe designers could be thinking saying well what how might car parks be used in five years or 10 years or whatever and how might we look at that from a fire safety point of view now Am I trying to predict exactly what's going to happen, whether autonomous vehicles are going to be the next thing or not? I might be right. I might be wrong. Literature says that they're growing in market size and that. But of course, is it just people trying to sell up the fact that they want autonomous vehicles? But it is interesting to at least think about these things and where possible, can we address them? Because these changes are likely Something's going to change. I mean, what we know is, that, you know, the, the only constant is change or some words like that. So yeah. we see that with with technology and society. And I don't see technology and society stopping. But buildings, we have a life of buildings that may be 30, 40, 50 years or the life of a car park. Where, 
and users of those car parks and the vehicles that go in them are going to change and they will have some kind of impact on fire safety whether that's i say whether that's a mitigating something or or increasing something that's for us to kind of think a bit and sort of say well it might be this it might be that what might we do to design decisions to to somewhat think about whether we can address those man considering building as a system that caters to the temporary needs of society at a given point of time and understanding the threats related uh, that are actually coming out of these needs. This is level of holistic thinking. I think no one has got in this podcast yet. I, I think Brian was probably the closest with the socio-technical uh, systems of fire safety. But wow, this is mind-breaking, but so refreshing and so interesting way to think about the issues in the fire safety. And it goes well, well beyond fire safety of car parks and, and vehicles. Thank you so much for, for this talk, Mike. This, and there is so many topics we, we need to have a, a chat about, and I'm looking forward to, to do that. Uh, th thanks a lot, man. That was great. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for listening to me ramble on. Um, <laughs> If I was used to like three-hour Joe Rogan-style podcast episodes, I would just keep let you keep going, but... My listeners are probably the. I think, I think your audience episodes. might have might find that listening to me for four hours might be a little bit a little bit more than they're willing to take. Well, that, that's an experiment we can try one day, like a super long uh, episode, just r r rambling on fire safety. We'll call it like that. Uh, it's going to be great. Yeah, people uh, can Mike, jump jump in and jump out at random jump points. In, jump out. <laughs> and there's there's always interesting discussion ongoing. Whatever you jump in, that would be so cool. Thank you so much for, for taking the invite and, and see you around, Mike. And that's it. Uh, a difficult episode to summarize because of the broadness of the discussion. But I think this broadness, the fact that we've touched so many aspects that all influence the safety in the car park, that's something interesting and, and inspiring. I mean, truly holistic view. Even to go uh, into what Mike said about how the car parks are used today and how may be used in 20, 30, 50 years from now, when we will be dealing with completely different vehicles, with completely different challenges, increasing fuel loads. But automation, maybe we can move them away from our high-risk uh, buildings. This is exciting world of possibilities, and I'm very glad that I've been given a chance to explore it with Mike in, in front of you all. And yeah, I, I hope you've enjoyed it thoroughly as I did. And next content next Wednesday. See you there. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.